Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 2. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. Back in 2017, uh, my first book, Becoming Curious, A Spiritual Practice of Asking Questions, came out. And in the process of writing a book, if you've never done that before, what you find out is there are all kinds of things that happen that you don't know are going to happen, things that sort of take you by surprise, like how hard the writing process can be, like how many times you're going to look at it and say, I hate this. This is awful. This is the worst thing that's ever been written. But one of the greatest surprises for me that came when I was writing Becoming Curious is in the process of gaining endorsements. You're looking for people who want to speak well of what you've written that will read it and and will say, hey, I think this is something other people should read. And I remember being out with my wife. We were at a thrift store. And I remember getting an email saying that someone had endorsed my book. Somebody I'd never met before. Somebody I'd never talked to before. But a name that I definitely recognized. And it was one of those moments that said, I think this project is what you're supposed to be doing. That person was Emily P. Freeman. And since then, she and I have developed a conversational relationship over distance, also through a connection with the Apprentice Institute, which you all have heard me talk about before. But today in our conversation, we get to talk a bit about her most recent book, The Next Right Thing and how we make decisions and make choices based on the things that are good and life-giving and wise. Emily is a writer, as a guide in the path of spiritual formation, has a lot to contribute to this, and I think you'll hear that through the context of this interview. So, without further ado, may I present to you my friend, Emily P. Freeman. Emily, this has been uh, a while in coming, but I'm glad we we finally get to talk. I'm so glad we get to talk too. Yes. So both of us uh, are kind of connected to the Apprentice Institute in Wichita. And you are you finished with your program now? Listen, I'm finished with my program. And it, in some ways, it was a fast two years. But in other ways, um, it was a long time coming. So I'm really, I'm grateful. It was a great, it was a great two years. And you did, which which program did you do? I did the master's program. So it was sort of uh, connected with their apprentice experience, um, part of the Apprentice Institute. Um, But at the end, rather than getting a certificate, you get a a master's degree, which is great. So we had some online classes in between our gatherings that kind of supplemented the work. Um, And it was beautiful. It It was a great program. Yeah. And people listening, I've talked about Apprentice enough, but uh, Institute for Spiritual Formation based out of Friends University in Wichita and certificate programs, undergraduate programs in Christian spiritual formation and have have had a huge impact on me and also on you and other people that we've we've met and talked with. So I'm glad you did. I'm glad you survived. I did. I survived. I'd like to think I thrived. Yes. Some great, you know, I hope to be lifelong friendships. And um, it's it's one of those settings where when you get there and you start to learn beside these people, you realize like, oh, these are my people. And so that's always a really lovely thing to realize when you are in, a, especially in a program like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about acknowledging, I think about the whole great cloud of witnesses yeah passage and there's something about acknowledging the people who have who have influenced you who have been the energizers or the inspirers or the, just the come alongsider kind of folks 
Uh, and I would put you in that list for me. A couple of your books have been that way uh, in seasons when I was writing or or trying to figure out what that looked like. So so this conversation in a lot of ways is a, a little bit of a, a thank you. And also uh, I want people to kind of hear what you're what you're doing these days. But so I appreciate you taking the time to talk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first question, and everybody listening is expecting this. So I always begin because the podcast, what we were trying to do is gather wise conversations, uh, conversations about living wisely along the journey with Jesus. And so if you had to start to define the word wisdom, where would you begin? What a great question. I think I would begin very simply with the word listen, listen, because all the the people I know who are the most wise also seem to be the people who are the best listeners. And I think there's something really powerful about being able to hold space and um, catch the words of other people without jumping into add your own experience quickly or correct or take over or all the things that, you know, all the different listening styles that I put quote unquote listening styles that there are uh, non-listening styles, I guess. So when I think about wisdom, I think, I don't know if I have a nice definition, but, but somewhere in there, it would have to start with listening and silence. When we, when you talk about that, do you see an intersection between the wisdom that comes from listening and the work of the writing life? Uh, because every, every bit of writing is something that is lived first and then processed and recorded and, and conveyed and communicated through the, through the way that we write. What, where do you see the intersection between listening and writing? Well, I've always seen my work as a writer is... Um, sort of twofold, paying attention to the world around me and then the world within me. And I think the best writers um, find how those two worlds connect and then they put it into their own language. So English, if you will. And I, I think that that's really impossible to do without a listening posture. I just got off of a about a month, maybe about six weeks um, that I took off of my work and my work is primarily podcasting and writing and I host a membership site or I, I co-run, co-lead a membership site for writers. So I talk about writing a lot, but it's funny when you are the teacher of writers or you do a lot of talking about writing that, believe it or not, takes away from your time to write. <laughs> so I, uh, it was good for me. It was good timing. I just launched a book and all the things, lots of really busy spring, graduated, you know, and then I had some time of off of silence from all of those things. And while I still had life and um, still had responsibilities at home, so much of my day in and day out activities was hushed. And I had some space to not just to listen to God and to those around me, but to read and then to write. And what I discovered was, I think I was afraid, honestly, Casey, that taking time off was going to make me like, Oh no, will I never be able to write? Will it because I'm out of the habit? Because you know, it's the momentum of writing of work keeps you kind of moving. And when you stop for a while, for me anyway, the fear is I won't I won't be able to find it again. But what actually happened was because I that space was created for living, um, I couldn't stop myself from doing the writing. Not that the writing was any good, but just the process of um 
of leading, a, as Adam McHugh would say, a listening life for a really focused season. Um, if you're a writer, the way you process the world, that's going to come out. And so I discovered that listening and writing uh, go right together. They're like best friends. Um, and I, the opposite is also true when I am in a super busy time and I'm being pushed around by my schedule and the pace of life, the writing, at least the meaningful writing, is a lot more difficult. Yeah. There's, a, there's an interesting conversation in all this, which has to do for me with creativity and whether people call themselves creatives or not. I think there is at the heart of everything that we do, whether it's parenting or preparing meals or preparing a sermon or you know, metal fabricating or pipe fitting, or, you know, I have some friends who work in, in the trades, all of that. I think there's a creativity to all of that. And what I hear you saying is that creativity and listening, regardless of what the creative work might be for you and for me, a lot of it's writing uh, or podcasting. Talk a little bit about how you would, how you would transfer this idea of listening to the kind of creative work that is outside of the writing life, but it's it's the sort of normal everyday um, demands of what we do just to just to get by, just to survive. It's a really interesting conversation because when you talk to people about creativity um, or making art or doing work that requires any amount of you know that word creativity, I guess I could just leave it at that. There are so many people, and maybe even people listening right now who are like, eh, check out, I'm not creative. Um, and I know that's a conversation maybe that's been had a lot over and over, but I just can't ignore the fact that the very first thing we know about God is that he created. It doesn't say in the beginning he made a list or he you know, planned his week out, and then on the weekend he created. It just says in the beginning God made. And that's the very first thing we know about him. And if you fast forward a little bit, you learn that the very first thing we know about us is that we were made in the image of God, male and female. He created us. And so if the first thing we know about him is that he created and the, the, the first thing we know about us is we're made in his image, then that just begs the question, what are the implications of us in our life and work as we move forward if we're made in the image of a creative God? And I just think it means that none of us are exempt from bearing his image into the world which means that none of us are uh, excused from creative work. And so no matter if you're an accountant or a painter, uh, there, is, there is creativity to be had. And when I think about parenting comes to mind and I think, wow, creativity is asked of me every day when I parent my kids. Um, but if I don't have a listening posture, I am much less aware of what is most needed in this moment, because the thing is, it might be really different than what's needed for that kid in 15 minutes or 15 days or 15 years from now, but there's not just one way. And I think sometimes in life, whether it's parenting or our work that we do every day, or even in writing, it's much easier if there was a system to follow and if there was a formula to follow and if we could figure it out. But the more I walk with Jesus, the more I feel invited into an invitation of life looking much less like a list and more like a lyric. And while I do know that there are um, rhythms and routines that are really beautiful and that can be followed, I think that there is a um, also an invitation for us to have that listening posture to see when those rhythms and routines 
might need to change. And I think that's where the creativity and the listening, um, but also the rhythms that you can count on all kind of sing really well together. And I'm still learning what that looks like in my everyday life, honestly. Yeah. I love that, the way those things come together. It's it. We tend to think of, when I lead people in retreats, and we do silent retreats, and at, usually the beginning is skepticism, the middle is enjoyment, and the end is regret. And that regret comes in like, oh, I wish I could stay here. And the, what's behind that is I have to go back to this other part of my life that's not this. But being able to identify that this is a, a habit, a practice, a rhythm that fits within yeah. rather than is the exception too. Like, it'd be great if I didn't have to parent. I could just stay at this retreat center all week. Well, actually, you're here so that you can go back there. Right. It's the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some of that that dovetails into the most recent book that you've written, um, talking about the next right thing. Because it is a, the book is really talking about how do you, dis, it's discernment. Like right. wisdom and discernment are hand in hand. And so we've, we're talking about wisdom as listening, this posture of listening. And discerning is that too. It's listening to uh, Parker Palmer's idea of the vocation that comes from within. Uh, it's listening to the circumstances we're in, the people we're in relationship with, and being able to say yes and no. As, as you wrote, did you find your did you find a natural obstacle in you between what it takes to say yes and what it takes to say no? <laughs> That's an interesting question. A natural obstacle. You mean to me personally for my own life? Yeah. Because I always believe that a book is a collation of a person's life. So yeah. a lot of what you're writing is coming out of, oh, yeah, this this is where I'm at. Other people have got to be there. This right. Can't, this can't just be me. It's so true. I think a lot of it comes from a place of, for so many years, having conversations with people. And my husband, John, was in youth ministry for 12 years. And so a lot of those people in our early marriage were students. Hmm. And so much of what, especially students, but also I think as we grow up, we have the same questions. They just are more sophisticated or hidden. We don't say them out loud. So many questions that students have and, and grownups too is just, um, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? And what if I get it wrong? And I think we all carry around a giant question mark and we're afraid we think there is just one right way and we're desperately afraid uh, to trust ourselves and to move forward because a lot of us, people who, especially if you've grown up in the church, uh, a lot of us are afraid to move forward because we're afraid, what if that's not what God wants? Mm -hmm. And so we have this kind of idea that he's got a perfectly mapped out life that he's holding behind his back of, of our lives and that our job as Christians is to guess what that map says, and he's going to stand far away from us, hiding the map behind his back with his eyes raised and his foot tapping, and we're kind of playing out in front of him to watch his face and see if we can get it right. And that is not the God that Jesus shows us, hmm. but that is often the way we live, as if that's the God of the Bible. Um, and so the pebble in my shoe, if you will, <laughs> writing that book was this pervasive frustration, which Seth Godin says he never wrote a book for any reason other than because he was frustrated. Um, oh, Dallas Willard says the most important question we can ask ourselves is what bothers us. 
Uh, and so moving forward, any, I, I feel the same way as Seth Godin. The only reason I've ever written anything that matters is because I've been frustrated. Mm. Um, and I think this book is no different. This book, The Next Right Thing, all about decision-making and a soulful path for making those decisions is because I have seen that image of God distorted so, um, in some ways, subtly and almost to where it's believable that he is this, uh, the way that we picture him as, you know, like a cosmic trickster or a, a someone who's holding something back from us. And it honestly kept me up at night. And also sometimes I believed it too. Um, but I don't really believe it. Not, not when you get down to the deepest part. And so writing into that when it comes to, and I'm really passionate too, like what you said, the people who are frustrated on the retreat because they have to go back to their life. Um, I am so obsessed with the liturgy of our ordinary life, mainly because I often despise it. And I think that is something that I am learning to see. This is where God meets us. If, if not here, then where? Mm -hmm. And so in our decision-making and in those everyday moments, um, this is, this is where things get real or we, uh, deny the reality of God. It's like that. It's in this, it's in saying yes or no. It's in deciding to move forward or not. Is God here with me or is he not? And that's the question that I was sort of wrestling with as I wrote that book. It's so good when I can hear people agree with something I was already thinking. I love that. <laughs> that's awesome. Isn't that great? Yeah. I've just, I've lately been pondering two things and I hear them in what you're saying. One is that the image of God is and you having spent time with Jim Smith will hear this, him in this, uh, our image of God is the most important thing. Yes. Uh, the most important formation issue. I heard someone once, uh, not too long ago, actually say that stewardship was the biggest discipleship issue we faced. And I, I couldn't agree with that because you can be good at generosity and still have a corrupt image of God. That's right. And it just means your gener generosity comes from, doesn't come from necessarily a healthy place. And I've also been wrestling, and I hear this, and I think this is, for me, one of the things that is a natural obstacle in the yes or no conversation, but how spiritual formation is uh, defining our relationship to power, mm. and that choice is a kind of power. Yeah. Like, God is all-powerful when he holds that plan behind his back, and I love that imagery, um, that if you—it's like, I grew up on those choose-your-own-adventure books, Yep. and I was the kid who read both same options just yeah. so I didn't pick the wrong because one of right. them you get killed by pirates the other one you save the princess um, <laughs> and so I didn't want to get killed by pirates and so I feel like we do the same thing with God is can you tell me which of these two choices and uh, and that really is a, about our relationship with with power I think yeah who has the power to make the choice so talk a little bit about that because you talk about when to say yes and when to say no in the book how do we process the times when the no or the yes is out of our control? When the the power to make the choice, how do we remain, how do we keep our soul intact in the midst of that kind of situation? Well, I think the first thing is to remember what we're really talking about. And that is that when it comes down to it, um, it's, and this is hard to believe when we're faced with a choice. Um, but the more important issue, it's less about, um, the decisions that we're making and it's more about the person we're becoming and while that's easy for me to say on this side of your decision you know if you're listening you're like 
but okay, that's great. But I really do have to make this decision. You know, like this is really a thing. Um, but there is a little bit of the pressure that's relieved. If I really believe that that's true, that God is with me, no matter what I choose, uh, that he will love me no matter what I choose. Um, and that as we wrestle with a decision in his presence, that he is perfectly capable uh, of walking with us through it and revealing something to us if he thinks we need to know it. And if not, we he's given our us his spirit to walk with us forward. And I, man, I think that we um, really discount our desire because we're so afraid of it. Like we're not supposed to uh, really take that into account. And while I'm sure there are situations where that's true, of course there are, but man, if I'm really wanting to make the best decision and I uh, carry it and think it through and talk with people I trust and pray and consider, and then I just make a choice, um, I can trust that. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn out all right. I think we put a lot of our, if I made the right or wrong choice based on how it turns out, but sometimes how it turns out is real bad and it was still the right choice. And that is not something we learn in high school. You know, that is like the opposite, I feel like, of what we learn. Um, it's not often something we learn in church. Either. It's not something we learn anywhere. Yeah. It's because that's, it's like you choose you choose this and it will, if it leads to success, then you chose right. But if it leads to brokenness and, and failure or weakness, or you looking like a fool, then you should have chose differently. And I mean, just look at, look at the life of Jesus and you, that's proven wrong right away. And we can't really argue with it. Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question, Casey, but those are some things on my mind. That's good. No, I, I think it is. And I love that idea of, because what I'm hearing is that a lot of times decision-making is not about I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. It's about I'm going to do this and I'm surrendering the outcome. Yes. There's so much about, you know, it is, it's, it's about the image of God and who we believe God really is. And off of that is, and because of that, if I have the image of God that comes from Jesus, I can surrender outcomes. Just as you know, Jesus decides to go to the cross. I don't lay my nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord, and I'm going to wrestle with that. And I'm going to struggle with it, but I'm choosing that, and I'm surrendering the outcome to my Father. And I was just talking to some guys about this this morning. How often we have a pre-Friday mentality about decision making. How can this possibly be good? Knowing the implications of saying yes to something, whether it's dealing with deep wounds or having a conversation that we don't want to have or asking for forgiveness. How could the, you know, I'm looking at the disciples, looking at Jesus going, how can this be good? But they're looking at it in, in the frame of trying to manage the outcomes. Is there a, is there a decision that you've had to make where it has just been the whole, I don't know what's going to happen here. I need to surrender the outcomes and just, you know, in Annie Dillard's language, I need to strap on my crash helmet and walk <laughs> into this. Has there been a moment like that for you? Well, I think I've had a lifetime of moments like that, um, for sure. 
I'm trying to think of one recently that feels relevant. I know that, you know, we talked about me going to school and that was a that was one of those decisions for me. And while just a quick disclaimer, that is a privileged conversation to be able to decide whether or not to go to grad school as a grown up. And I totally own that. And so that might not be applicable in all situations. Um, but we all do have choices, albeit some, you know, in some areas we have and in some areas we don't. This is an area I had a choice in. The reason why it was difficult, though, was not because I didn't think it would be good or because I didn't think it, I would learn things to go when going to school, um, but it was because I couldn't fully explain why. And we, let's face it, don't live in a culture where we do things where we're not sure, where we're not certain of what the next step will be when we're done. You know, you go to, we ask students all the time, where are you going to go to school? What are you going to major in? What kind of job do you want to get? You know, when it comes to vocation and work and jobs and things like that, it's a, it's a one, two, three, ABC. That's, that's kind of how we go. And so why, why Casey, would a human person who already has a job do something that costs money and takes time um, when the outcome was unsure and when it was going to not just uh, take up time in my own life, but also in the lives of my family. And, you know, it would require things of them that, that I didn't know at the time how much, you know, it's like how much time is. So this is a sim- kind of a simple um, example, but I think some people can relate to this this decision where um, it would have been okay not to go and it would have been okay to go. Those are sometimes the hardest decisions when you're choosing between a bad thing and a good thing. Well, that's kind of easy. Those aren't the ones we wrestle with. It's when we're choosing between a fine thing and another fine thing or a good way or, and another good way. Um, Or sometimes, unfortunately, we have to choose between a a bad thing and another bad thing. I mean, that happens too. Um, But even more complicated is when, we can't uh, explain why, because that's the first question people ask me, right? When they found that I had enrolled in graduate school, like, oh, really? Well, what do you want to do when you graduate? Can I just get there first? <laughs> Can I just like go through the motions and figure this out? Um, and so the answer is still not super clear and I've already graduated, but, um, but man, I'm sure glad I did it. And just like decisions, um, it's not always about the decision you make, but it is always about the person we're becoming. And I am finding decision-making to be the most sacred ground of spiritual formation that I have yet found, and I'm grateful for it. Hmm. I often counsel people that, and this happens a lot in when I'm talking with church leaders, but I think with individuals too in spiritual direction, that every time we say yes, to, so we talk about decision making as, and you talk about it this way in the book as yes and no, a little bit of, it's, and it's not binary. Like we're not saying it's either yes or no, because it feels like every time we say yes to a decision, we're also saying no to a whole host of other things. Yeah. How, how does that every yes is a no, how have you, what has that sort of cultivated in your soul? Maybe using the school as an example, as you said yes to that. What did you notice from what happened with the no side? So to say yes to this program meant you said no to, you know, whatever the list might be. What what how, what did that cultivate in you over the time? Now that you can look back. Yeah. I tell you, that's one reason why I often put off decisions is because I'm so aware of what I'm saying no to that it's hard to move forward with the yes. Another thing that I've noticed is that Sometimes, and this might sound weird, some people don't think this way. I think this way. Maybe you do too. You can tell me. 
is that I often make decisions based on what I think I will regret less later. So I look ahead into the future and I think, will I regret having done this or I, will I more regret having not done this? Which is kind of a not a super great way to live, to think about your re future regret, but it's what I do. It's like my natural kind of way that I do. Can you relate with that at all? Am I? Yeah. And we, I mean, we were talking about the Enneagram earlier and that both of us identify as a, in the four space, that uniqueness, that creativity. But I also, you know, from a Myers-Briggs perspective, that NF, I'm an ENFP. So people, intuitions, like so much of it is gut feeling. And I, I can identify with that because- that's that's that viewpoint on the world of well, am I going to regret not hanging out with these people more than I would getting a decent amount of sleep? You know, even down right. to that practical thing. I of, know. Yes, I, I will feel I will feel like I missed something yes. if I wake up rested tomorrow, but I didn't go and hang out with these very interesting people. So yeah, I I can sympathize with that. And I think that in a weird way. It is a future anticipation of knowing that I ruminate over the past because I do, as a four on the Enneagram, I have a, a, a withdrawn stance. I tend to live in the past in my imagination. So when I think about a decision that's going to affect something in the future, I imagine myself in the future and what will I, how will I be looking back on the past? Mm -hmm. Because that's how I live, which is a very kind of a layered way to think about it because you're actually thinking about the future, but your focus is the past. It's weird. But I do think it, so it, it kind of makes sense in my head, although it might sound really illogical saying it out loud. Um, so I do think that you're right. Um, the implications of a yes knowing all of the no's, um, I sift through those. And, and that's why for me, the practice of um, reflection is really powerful, not, not in regret, but reflection with some intention for moving forward. Um, I, I think that uh, so much of our life, uh, so much of my life, I miss because, um, because of the pace of life. And I know that's really simple to say, but I do think in reality, it's, it's a reality for a lot of us that this is where life is happening in this regular Tuesday or whatever the day of the week is. Um, but we are missing it. And so this practice of reflection for me, and I do it through a filter of, and I do this every month in my own list, and I really kind of make it robust. I, I robustly do it every quarter. So I'll look back on the last three months and I literally look back and I think, what have I learned in the last three months? Um, because I tell you what, a really great indicator of future decisions is decisions I've already made and how they've impacted my life, either in a life-giving way or a life-draining way. So, But if I'm not taking the time to remember what decisions I made and what impact they had on my life and family, then it's it's they're not going to be top of mind when I have to make that decision again. I think we I can make life harder on myself. Um, when I live unreflectively, because I just quite simply forget, I forget how hard that thing was, or I forget, oh, that's actually not my personality to volunteer first thing in the morning at the kids' school, you know, and, and I forget that in my excitement next time. But living a life of reflection helps me to record it, to write it down, to name it. I think there's great power in naming things, both the things like that, like what volunteer opportunities are most life-giving for me and fit within my own ability to do and to serve and to love people and which ones don't. Um, that as well as the almost unnameable things like 
when I'm around this person, why do I feel defensive? There's something happening beneath that. But if I don't take the time to reflect on that, then I might just begin to live my life avoiding that person rather than realizing, oh, that person reminds me of a great aunt I have who made me uncomfortable. And now I, I've named that. And so now I don't have to be so afraid of that person anymore because I took the time to name the thing happening beneath the thing. And so that's there's a lot of power in that reflection practice for me personally. And I think that helps me as I'm sifting through my yeses and nos because I'm doing it with my eyes open rather than just kind of instinctually or what feels right or doesn't feel right at that time. Hmm. So it's almost like you're saying that memories are part of our formation. Wow. As I recall. What? That what? is fascinating. <laughs> I think somebody should write on that. Um, Pretty shy. No, I love that, though. It's so practically, the practice of reflection for you, it sounds like is kind of a journaling practice. Mm-hmm. It is. Is it, a, is it a daily or do you have a do you have a rhythm to it or is it more of a kind of when the situation arises or on the fly kind of practice? What I do is, I mean, here's the nitty gritty. As I'm living my life, if I recognize something, um, and I do this from like silly things, like for example, not silly, but like really just like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know. For example, last month, I realized both my parents graduated high school in 1969. Why did I not know that? I'm, I'm like 40 years old. Why did I not know that my, I'd never thought about it. And I've been always fascinated by the sixties. I mean, 69, like that's like the man, man walked on the moon. And it's like this whole, like in the sixties, so much changed from like the beginning of the 1960s to the end of the 1960s. And my parents, that was their coming of age time. I mean, they grew up then, you know, like the draft, there's lots of things, Casey. So that was something that I thought, I don't want to forget that moment that I had when I realized that was there. So I wrote it down. I wrote it down and I put WWL, what we learned or what I learned. I put that in my journal. But when, so when I have time, I actually have a journal that I have just for this reflection practice and I label. So like August is the heading and I just bullet point what I learned in August. And then when August is over, I'm going to start the next month. And then at the end of three months, I'll look back and kind of cl- just kind of reflectively look back really intentionally quarterly, but I, but li- living life is just like a, a, a pattern of reflecting kind of when it comes or when I notice something. Um, and then quarterly, I'll look back and really kind of in gratitude or in, you know, just, okay, let me remember this or this. And, and that helps to uh, shape kind of the months moving forward. I love that practice. I may steal that. You can steal it. Absolutely. It's been, and and I've, I mean, I've been doing it for probably four years or so. Not that exact, you know, not, I haven't had a journal for it for that long, but I've been doing it and I even do it online. I've invited my readers to join me. Um, And quarterly, I have a link up, like it's, you know, 2007, we link up and like share our own lists of what we learned and what we're learning. And I love reading those lists that other people write, you know, they'll write, you know, this month I learned that something, and sometimes that's really silly things, but a lot of times there's one or two um, really beautiful things about themselves or about, you know, for me about, about God or about uh, a connection that you make that if you don't write it down, you might, you might make it, but you might not remember you made it. And if you don't remember it, then it really doesn't have a chance to form you. And so 
uh, yeah, that practice has been really life-giving for me. And for some people like that, they might want to gag and be like, oh, journaling, what do you mean? I have to write that down. But there are other ways to do it. You know, it doesn't have to be so formal. It can also be like, I used to honestly just do it by, I really love Instagram. And so a lot of the way I see the world is I love, I mean, combining photography and captions, writing and pictures together, be still my heart. I love it. And so a lot of times the things on Instagram that I share are some at least adjacently related to what I'm learning or what I've learned or an aha moment I've had. So I will sometimes at the end of the month go through just my Instagram posts and remind myself like, okay, that's okay. Because that I'm already in the habit of recording it through Instagram. Um, so no need to record it somewhere else if you don't want to do that. But so I think it's important to pay attention to like your own way your own rhythm, how you connect with people, with God, and um, and make it your own. And if journaling is not it, then by all means. But but yeah, feel, feel free to seal my practice. It's it's one I have really enjoyed. Yeah. What's interesting is I know from what you're saying, and because we're the same space in the Enneagram, there's a we are past ruminators and future expectors. But the journaling practice is such a present tense practice. Yes. Like you're writing it in the, it's not past or future. You are, you know, looking back over a month, but even that is a very short period of time. Uh, and I could see where that would be fruitful for decision-making mm-hmm. because you, you're just naming and describing and planting mile markers that define your character. You know, I acted like this is how I responded and so that tells me something about what I believe about myself, what I believe about God, what my values are. And that's extraordinarily helpful. So with a book like this, um, I can't imagine how writing is difficult anyway, but I can't imagine how difficult it was knowing that there is so much nuance in the decision-making process. Because if there wasn't, then it, it would be, you know, you could do a bullet point. Like you talked about earlier, there's not like a easy, here's an easy decision-making map and here's how you make every single decision. It's always about discernment and listening and wisdom. Uh, with that being said, what what's the gift you hope people take away from reading your book, especially people, because large, I imagine most people going to read this have a decision in mind. Like there's a need that brings them to the conversation. So what what's the gift you hope that people receive when they read this? I think the first word that comes to mind is relief, because when you do have a big decision to make, um, I think just even if we wouldn't say it this way, we just desperately want to make the right one. And remembering when uh, when Jesus told his disciples that they would know the way, um, and and I think it was Thomas who said, "Well, we don't know the we don't know the way. Like, what's we don't have the map? We don't know the way." And Jesus said, "I am the way." And that for me is both maddening because that doesn't make any sense that a person is the way, but it's also a relief because it doesn't make any sense. So therefore, maybe it means I don't have to figure it out, but there's an invitation to trust God in a way that I have never had to trust him before and that I can trust and believe that um, His the promise of Psalm 23 that um the Lord is my shepherd and I have everything I need, even in the midst of an unmade decision that I can trust that uh, I have everything I need. One of my favorite things I know about Dallas Willard, who I never had the pleasure of meeting in real life, 
was that in his book, Hearing God, he talks about this process of making decisions. And he states it so simply that when he has a decision to make, he prays and he places that decision before the Lord. And then he gets up and he goes along his way, gardening, taking a walk, grocery shopping. And I thought, well, isn't that this brilliant man who, you know, philosopher, teacher, thinks so deeply in, so, in ways that people have to read other books just to understand his brilliant mind. When he makes decisions, he just states it simply before God and then goes out into the garden. And man, if Dallas Willard can do it like that, I think we can do it like that too. Yeah. That's so good. And uh, Dallas, yeah. I don't know what else you could say about it. I think it's the you summed it up perfectly. Like to understand Dallas, sometimes you're like, I need a thesaurus. Or, right. or where's John Ortberg when I need him? Um, <laughs> just to try and get into it. But such a powerful influence. But um, thank you for writing this. Um, I think of it, I obviously think of it personally, but I think of it for the people who I've had to, who I've had the privilege of helping work through decisions. And just how many of the questions that you're asking and that you pose and that you bring up are there. That's exactly what they've been thinking. And the image of God aspect and, you know, even stuff we didn't get to, like the myth of good opportunities. Like, this seems like a good thing. And um, I'm just so thankful that they have something like your book to to engage with and, and find that relief. I love that word. That's perfect. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. P. Freeman is an author, a podcast host, and a person who is deeply interested in people finding space for their soul to breathe so they can discern the next right thing in love. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Simply Tuesday, as well as her new book, which we talked about called The Next Right Thing. You can find links to Emily's information and work and also to the book in the notes to the show. And so I'd encourage you to go pick up a copy of her book. Uh, Any of them, any of them are well worth reading. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you if you stream via my website. I appreciate it if you listen via iTunes. Uh, Thank you for doing that. Again, if you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, I would love that. And you know what? If you wouldn't mind sharing this episode with someone you know could use it, uh, that would be wonderful. So uh, as you discern what your next right thing is, I pray that God gives you the grace and peace to do that well, to do it clearly, to do it with confidence and with courage. Be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. <laughs>